Well, dear friends, I'd invite you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to this passage that we read in our hearing, 2 Kings and the 17th chapter. This morning we come for the very last time to consider here in 2 Kings the people of Israel. We could write over this passage, not my people, not my people. The Lord, as we see in this chapter, now forsakes Israel. It's a very solemn passage. It's a very sober passage. I hope that it will give us opportunity to examine our own hearts in the light of Almighty God. My friends, God is not to be trifled with. God is a holy God. We have sung this morning, holy holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he calls his people to holiness. He says in his word, be holy, for I am holy. And the scriptures tell us that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. If we are saved, if we are called by grace, if we are the elect of God, we will be a holy people. We are not saved by a holy life, but we are saved by the election, by the grace of God, which is according to grace. But that grace works holiness in the life. And those who are not holy, and we have seen many people come and go from this church over the years, and in a sense that is a very humbling thing to see people come and go. And people do come and go from churches. And it's a solemn thing when you see that. It just proves again that God is not to be trifled with. Those that walk with the Lord walk in holiness. We see, as we've read here, only Judah is left following the Lord. And even she, Judah, was not perfect. Of course, God's people are not perfect but they will fear him, and they will honor him. It's interesting, as we will see in this chapter, that even indeed the people of Israel, they had a sense of the fear of the Lord. As we have read a number of times, you probably observed that in this passage, and yet they followed after the idols of the heathen. They followed after those gods. There was a great delusion that was sent now to Israel, and that will even be amongst those who once professed the Lord. There will be a sense still of the fear of God, but they will still, mixed with their fear, be a love for this world. And my friends, that is a terrible judgment of Almighty God, that that kind of a thing should fall upon a man, that he should have a sense of true religion, but yet be as lost as lost can be, as we'll see here in this chapter in Israel. As I said, we could write over this passage, not my people. We see here how now the Lord dismisses this nation, the ten tribes, and they will be lost forever, disseminated amongst the Sumerians and be called the Samaritans later on, we know 
from John chapter 4 when the Lord Jesus meets the woman of Sychar at the well. We meet of the Samaritans there. And they did not know the Lord. Ye worship, he said, that which ye know not. Now before we come to this passage, I wish you to just turn with me to the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 1. And I'm taking you there because Hosea, the prophet, ministered during this time. He began his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II, right up until the fall of Jerusalem, or sorry, Israel in the north in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem would fall much later in 586 BC here, but the time here now, prophet Isaiah, as he begins his ministry, I want you to notice I said we could put over this passage, not my people. And this is what Hosea says. Hosea 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibelaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. This is the prophecy. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again, and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lorhamah. For I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when he had weaned Lorahamah, she conceived and bare a son. Now notice verse 9. Then God said, God, call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. So that's why we can rightly write over this passage, not my people. Not my God, not my people. He will not be their God in the sense of their Savior. Now the Lord had made a covenant with Israel. It was a bilateral covenant and they had to keep agreement with that. If they honored the Lord, they would be blessed. This is very different to the covenant of grace. I need to 
interject that right now. Every believer, everyone that is saved, that is born of the Spirit, is under the covenant of grace. But we need to examine ourselves. Are we under the covenant of grace? Or are we still under a covenant of works? Now, Adam was a covenant under a covenant of works, and so were Israel. If they kept their agreement with God, remember the covenant with Adam? Adam, the day that you sin, you will die. It was based on works. And so was also the covenant here with Israel in a sense. If they were obedient to God's commandments, if they were obedient to his laws, there would be blessing. There would be nationalistic blessing. But if they forsook his commandments, if they forsook his ways, forsook his ordinances, there would come great curses upon the land and he will leave them to the nations that surround them. And now after many, 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 many years, judgment finally comes to Israel. And then again, this is a, a proof to examine our own hearts. Are we saved? Now, of course, there's always a remnant in Israel, always a remnant in Judah. And the remnant hear the word of God and they fear God. And they, they all look to the Savior to come. All those that were in Israel who were truly spiritually Israel, a people after God's own heart, like David, like all those who were of faith, believed that God would save by his grace, by his mercy, in the promised Messiah to come. Now remember, Israel broke away from Judah. After Solomon, remember, Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and Israel rebelled. Those ten nations in the north rebelled against the house of David. And to rebel against the house of David was a great wickedness because it was rebelling against the promise that would come from the house of David. And what is that promise? Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Now, we come on the scene here in this passage. And really, we're picking up from chapter 15, aren't we, in the verse 30, because now we're back here to Israel, but now for the final time, when we see this nation now that are not going to be a nation and that are not going to be the people of God anymore. They will be disseminated into the people of Assyria, and there will be a massive immigration of the Assyrians into Israel so that they will no more even look like Israel. Because as we see the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, he sends foreigners into Israel to occupy those cities that it's a complete change now. They never look the same. Such a sudden change in the land. But really we're picking up from 2 Kings 15 verse 30 where it reads, And Hoshea the son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah the son of Ramaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So we're picking up from there here in chapter 17. And what we see, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, is the judgment of God finally falling upon Israel. Judgment was promised. 
by God. It was promised in the covenant, remember. We have a reiteration of that covenant in Deuteronomy 28. It's a long chapter. But here, first of all, I want you to notice, as we see the judgment coming, we have a summary of Hosea's or Hoshea's reign. Look in verses 1 to 3, but it's specifically given more clearly in verse 2. But I'll read from verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, let's see, in the south began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria. Now, remember, Samaria is another name for Israel. Samaria was the capital of Israel over Israel nine years. So it was a very short reign that he had, just nine years. And he began to reign in Samaria, the capital of Israel. Now notice, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Now it might seem very strange to us. One, it says here, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the other kings. He wasn't as wicked, although it says he was evil. It might seem strange to us that somehow now God will, will bring judgment upon Israel because he is not as evil as the other kings, although he was evil. Someone might ask, well, is God perhaps being a little bit unfair? Should he not give them more time? Why is God doing this? Well, the answer really is threefold. Firstly, we could say that this king, Hoshea here, it says he was wicked. Now, my friends, we must always understand that slightly less wicked is still wickedness to God. Wickedness is wickedness. And wickedness does not please God. God hates all sin. This man was clearly a lost man. He wasn't as evil as he could be. But he was still lost, still a wicked man. He had no repentance toward God. He had no faith. And he doesn't call out to God, even when the king here of Assyria threatens him. And he's not, he's paying what we call protection money, subjugation money for a number of years to Assyria and then to Egypt. He's not trusting God. God had said in Isaiah, he said to Israel, your strength is to sit still. And not say, let us make a confederacy with, with Egypt and these other nations. But trust in the Lord. He will deliver you from all your enemies. That was the promise, and a promise which God had fulfilled right through the book of Judges. Hundreds of years God had fulfilled that promise to protect the nation. So he's a wicked king. Because he had no repentance toward God and no faith in the Lord. Secondly, we could say, I said this is, we could say God is doing this because this is a threefold reason. Secondly, we could say here, this is cumulative judgment. Over many, many, many years, Israel has continued on in this wicked path of idolatry. Not only Baal worship, but golden calf worship and syncretism, and now imbibing other religions and forsaking the Lord, it's cumulative judgment. And here's another thing. It wasn't just the kings 
that were wicked. But the people tolerated these kings. And there's a time when a nation ought to stand up against an ungodly monarch. At least challenging. But that was not in the case so often. And once again, Israel itself, not only the king and their kings, had compromised God's laws. This is cumulative judgment, and God must bring it all to pass. No exception. But thirdly, we must say, has God not been long-suffering? And let me say, I must remind you, you people always talk about God's long-suffering. But remember that long-suffering has an end. It has a terminus. And there's a time when God's long-suffering runs out. Something else, God is always true to his word. That covenant promise did promise woe and judgment upon the land. It did promise death if people were not obedient. They had long withstood God's arm of protection, but now he will remove it. You will see in a moment how God brings this judgment. He brings it through the wicked nations. God doesn't put the, weak, the evil disposition in those nations. It's already there. But my friend, when you depart from the living God, be prepared to face a world that follows after Satan. A world that hates the image of God. A world that hates God's laws. In Deuteronomy 28, we're told in verse 35, The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot to the top of thy head. In fact, when you read Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 1, that's what we're told. The people of Israel were sick from the head to the toe. It's just, again, confirming that judgment was going to come. And we read in verse 36 of Deuteronomy 28, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. A nation out of nowhere, it seems, even. And there thou shalt serve other gods. Wood and stone, thou shalt become an astonishment. And they did become an astonishment. A proverb and a byword among the nations. Think of it. The whole world for centuries marveled. Look at these little people that came out of Egypt. How God had made them a mighty nation. How God parted the Red Sea. How God judged and destroyed Pharaoh's entire army. God did it. But now what's happened to them? They will become an astonishment and a byword among all nations whither the Lord shall lead thee. We see now this all takes place. This all takes place now, finally, we see how it takes place. Look, verse 3. Against him, that's Hoshea, came up Shamanezer, king of Assyria, 
and Hoshea became his servant. That is, he paid him this subjugation money, protection money, paid him taxes. Or we'll protect you, you just give us some money and we won't hurt you, we won't bully you, we won't overthrow you. That's the idea. Well, the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt. This king of Egypt, So, Hoshea starts to pay him and stops paying the king of Assyria. And he figures out, hold on, what's going on here? Maybe is he running now to Egypt to get protection? He found a conspiracy against him and turned against now Assyria. And what does he do? He takes Hoshea and he takes him into Assyria and he puts him in a prison. And he's bound up. The king of Israel is thrown in prison in a foreign land. Now notice, and the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him up in prison. This is how it began. And I want you to notice the swift pace in which all of this takes place. It's fairly straightforward, and one never would have imagined. First of all, he, he takes the king, puts him in prison, and then what Assyria do, the king of Assyria, Shamanezer, he... He starts to besiege the city of Samaria. That is, he surrounds it so that there is no trade can get in and out of the city. And by now, this was quite common. Many of the people began to starve to death and become weak in the city of Samaria, in Israel. And they were really brought to their knees, as it were. Look at verse 5. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. So for three years it was surrounded. In the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria. They took many of the people. So they made them weak by surrounding the, the people, the city and the little towns. And they were helpless, and they just took them away into a foreign land and placed them in, notice, Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan. It was a mass migration of the people outside. And then later, there's immigration. There's people brought in the land. They're taken out, and people are brought in. So it doesn't look like the same land. It's done so swiftly. One never would have thought this would happen so quickly. Once a mighty nation. Now they are led away captive. People literally taken by hooks away into a foreign land. Now remember this was prophesied. If you just We mentioned it last week, Isaiah 7. Remember how we saw Isaiah the prophet prophesied to ungodly Ahaz, king of Judah, what would happen to Israel and to the capital city of Israel, Samaria. Isaiah 7, 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within three score and five years, not long, shall Ephraim be broken that it be not a people. There's the prophecy. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, 
and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Now that's the prophecy. Now it's fulfilled. Thirdly, I want you to see this morning the judgment against Israel and Samaria here, the capital city, is detailed because God wants us to see exactly why and how this came to pass. So there, there's no excuse. And it's a warning. The scriptures say whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning. And I hope we'll learn some lessons here. I want you to notice in verse 7 to the verse 23, we have the judgment detailed. And it's given at great length here to show primarily the righteousness of God against sin. God is righteous. And we must never forget that. God hates sin. And he hates it particularly in those who name his name. A people called after his name. Let's first of all see Israel's sin listed. We see this in verse 7. And remember, what we'll see as we look at these verses here is that there are a few references to the fact that God took this nation who were once a tiny little nation out of Egypt. And God is hearkening our minds back to the great thing that he did. These people were in oppression in Egypt under Pharaoh. He, he did a mighty thing by bringing them out and bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And he blessed them. And there are a number of references here to the fact that he brought them out of Egypt under the hand, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice verse 7, For it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. This is why he's doing it. Which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Well, they feared other gods then even. Remember, some of them even brought little images out and that had to be dealt with and it was by and large dealt with but now they're worshipping other gods in this other land which God warned them not to and verse 8 and walked in the statutes or ordinances of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made and what we notice here is that God does not tolerate false religion. The heathen. And we know, as we'll see here, some of these were even established by the kings. We think of, we read of Jeroboam, didn't we? Who set up that golden calf worship. And that all began with money, didn't it? That was at the heart of it because Jeroboam and the people of Israel refused to pay the extra taxes which Rehoboam had requested. And they said, no, we're not going to. There was covetousness there. Yes, we could say that Rehoboam was harsh, he wasn't wise, but they were unwise to break away from Judah because the promised blessing would come through Judah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the king's and particularly, we think about it, Jeroboam thought he was above God's law. 
Isn't that true, Jeroboam? Do you remember that time when the Lord sent a prophet to Jeroboam the first in Israel straight after the split? And there is Jeroboam. He's made an altar of himself there in Bethel. And he's about to offer sacrifice before the Lord, which the king should never do. They made him a king. And it was never the responsibility or the office of the king to usurp the office of a priest. And the Lord sent a prophet and tried to and, and preached to him and told him and said, do not offer this thing up. And Jeroboam, he stretched out his hand and Remember how God froze his whole arm in midair and he had to pray to the prophet and his arm was given movement again. And yet even still then, Jeroboam continued on in that golden calf worship. The kings thought they were above God's word. Something else you notice not only Jeroboam, but remember Ahab. Ahab set up and continued on in that Baal worship with his wife Jezebel. And the Lord does not tolerate these things, my friend. The kind of worship, first of all, under Jeroboam, it was worship done in the name of the Lord, but it was wrong. God was never to be represented by golden calves. And that led, did it not, to even grosser idolatry, that of the Baal worship. And notice verse 9, And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Secretly. My friend, as if you can do something secretly before God. Can you do anything secretly? It, it's like this, you know, you, 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 little children. Maybe you play this game with them when they're young. And uh, they cover their eyes. And they think, you can't see them because, where's Johnny? And he's laughing. Because he can't see you. He thinks you can't see him. But you know, people grow up like that. In churches. They think they can do things secretly before the Lord. They set up images in the groves, in the hills, and they thought they could get away with this, that God doesn't see it. My friend, God sees us everywhere where we go. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of Almighty God with whom we have to do. Do you realize that? There's nothing in your life, in my life, that we can hide from God. Well, they knew they couldn't do these things in Jerusalem. They knew they, they shouldn't do these things. So what do they do? They, they do them in the secret places. And it's like that, I, I'm afraid, sadly, in so many people's lives. They do things secretly. But that's not salvation. You know, people grow up like little Johnny. Who thinks he, because he can cover his eyes, that God can't see him. They thought they could do things secretly. But you see, they, 
Those things were never approved of God. What does David say? Thou knowest my thoughts afar off. That's even more, isn't it? God even knows what we're going to think, let alone what we do in the open or maybe in some secret place. He knows what's in the heart. And my friend, God is the God of the whole earth. It's interesting, we'll see later on here how the lions are sent. And, and these Assyrians say, well, the God of the land is sending this judgment. Well, God did send the judgment. God did send the lions. But friends, he's not the God of the land. He's the God of the whole earth. Is he not? God saw it. God saw those things in the secret places they thought they could hide from God. You see, that's just superstition. In verse 10, and they set up themselves images and groves. So this is what they did, and this is just an outline, and a very detailed outline, mind you, of all that they did. And they set up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away from before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? It provokes God. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. The place now was full of idolatry. And again, this is not just private idolatry, but now it's, notice, it's under every tree. It's public, it's shameless idolatry. And that's true, that's how it begins, you know, Idolatry, it begins in the heart, doesn't it? And then people, it's more open and more open. And people become almost desensitized to it. And you can imagine, wherever you went now in Israel, there was incense and idols everywhere. But no fear of God. Secondly, I want you to notice that this was sin against a constant faithful light given by the prophets. You notice this in verse 13. You notice something here. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, turn ye from your evil ways. Now it's interesting. If you notice there, the word prophet and the word seer is used. The word seer, if you just turn to Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 9, 9, is the old word for prophet. And this was before Samuel, remember? 1 Samuel 9, 9, we read, Before time in Israel, it says, When a man went to inquire of God, Thus he spake, come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. So it's interesting here, as we come back to this passage, what the Holy Spirit is saying is, look, God's warning span from before even Samuel. 
right up until this day. A light was given by the seers and the prophets, but nobody's listened. God must fulfill his word. And what God is doing here is he is emphasizing his long suffering for a long time. But what were these people? They were a stiff-necked people. The longer God was suffering, the harder their necks became. And that's a warning to anybody here. Do not tempt the Lord. Because what you will do is you will sear your conscience and you will develop a very hard neck which the Lord will one day slay. We are warned. In 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last time. As ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for had they have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. They went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now remember what I said. Israel separated itself from Judah. True worship in Jerusalem, the sacrifice. Now granted, Judah was not without sin. Judah certainly had her sin. Jeremiah 27, 24, it says there of Judah, it speaks also of Israel, but the people didn't want to believe. People didn't want to believe the warnings. Harden not your heart this day against the Lord. We, we sing it, do we not, in that Psalm 95? People we saw had hard hearts even in Moses' day. Often people have self-justification in sin, don't they? We are warned in Hebrews 3, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. And then we're told in Hebrews 3, 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. They didn't believe that God was going to bring his judgment, that God was going to utterly, not only cut them off, but send them into a completely foreign land and send foreigners into their land. A complete overthrow. Sudden, swift judgment. You see, their outer sins were the inner proof of workings of unbelief. Look at their lives. What did the Lord Jesus say? By their fruit ye shall know them. As you and I, I must look at my fruit in my life every day as a Christian. And I must ask myself, am I bringing forth fruit worthy or meet 
in keeping with repentance? Am I truly a changed man? Do I love this world? Israel proved that they loved the world more than they loved God. And that's why God said in Hosea, we read it, chapter 1, verse 9, they are not my people, and I will not be your God. I want you to notice something else. They followed after vanity, and they became vain. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? It says, first of all, verse 15, they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them, and they followed vanity. First of all, they neglected God's commandments. My friend, here's a warning. God's commandments keep us in the right way. I, you know, the, the many years that I've been a Christian, I can mark it down when I see people no more coming to church. It's not long that they're in the world. You see and realize they're lost. This is what they did. They rejected his statutes. And what did they do? It says, verse 15, they followed vanity and became vain. Well, if you follow something that is vain, you are going to become vain. What are the idols of this world? Can they do anything? Can they speak? Can they, can they give you a minute longer to live? No, they, they utterly consume your life. Things, stuff. Those things cannot give you life, proper life here, and they cannot give you eternal life. They are vanity. And you, as a result, and they became vain. You become a vain person. And went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like unto them. My friends, we have to be very careful what we give our hearts to, don't we? Look at the people here. You see, if a man walks away from God's commandments, he becomes a law unto himself. I am startled when people say to me, well, what's the minimum I have to do to be a church member? What's the minimum I have to do to serve God? Well, that's the wrong kind of question to ask. You're thinking wrong. The question is, what shall I render to God? How much can I give him? I want to give him. I want to give him my life. I want to give him my heart. I long to be with God's people. I long to be in his house. I long to come under his word Pastor, I would never want to miss a sermon. Pastor, I would never want to miss a Lord's Day. Pastor, I would, I would never want to miss, and I want to give God all my life. Not how much can I do and get away with. That was the thought of the people here. Give God the bare minimum. That's not life, friend. That's not the saved person. 
You see, the commandments of God, they, they truly, they frame and govern a man's life for good. They don't bring you into bondage. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I wonder what some people have been so-called freed from. He set them free from Egypt. Ought to be a picture. What about the Egypt of this world? Are we free from it? Are you so free in Christ? The world doesn't have its clutches on you. But even your old life, even your hobbies, and there's nothing wrong with those things. We all enjoy sport. We all enjoy doing things. But friends, those things don't have a grip on us. You know, I can still have my, my old cricket bat and have it in the cupboard and take it out when, when I want to use it. My old rugby ball or whatever. I have those things, but they don't dominate my life. They don't rule me. You see, the Christian has been given power. I want you to notice in verse 16 to 17 the alarming decline. It says, and they left all the commandments of the Lord, their God, and made them molten images. What a foolish thing. See, those things were promising them prosperity, but only the Lord could give prosperity. God's commandments give us prosperity of spirit, of soul, don't they? But those things bring a soul into service to those things, to, the, to more things and more stuff of this world, even to calves. Well, the golden calves were a sort of supposed representation of God, but what an abomination. And they made the grove and worshipped all the host of heaven. We're told, aren't we, in that second commandment, not to make any false or graven image. My friends, it is an absolute abomination to God when you make an image of an angel and bow down to it. Or you make an image of any man or any host of heaven. God commands us, make no false or graven image of anything below or above and bow down to worship that. That's an abomination. But that's what they did. Exactly what the Lord commanded they shouldn't do. The molten images, what were they? They weren't really gods. They were an invention of the human mind. The grove, that was an invention of the mind. Human invention, wicked invention. Worshipping the host of heaven, that was a human invention. Baal was a human invention. They aren't gods. Baal is no god. But this is wickedness. And let me say, pseudo-Christianity and paganism end up in the same place, hell. They had a pseudo-kind of following God. And they ended up being like the pagans around them. You see, there's no compromise with God, is there? It can, it can be no compromise. Look at verse 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight, and there was none left but the tribe of Judah only. That's in the south. But notice verse 19. Judah was not free herself from the leaven of Israel. Also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. 
Judah was guilty in many ways. But there was a remnant there. And the Lord kept them. Of course, until the Messiah came, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we could look at many passages of Scripture, but time doesn't afford us this morning. Notice, as you come down to verse 20, we read, And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of the spoilers until he had cast out of his sight. For he rent Israel from the house of David. That's solemn, isn't it? What the Lord did is he eventually, you see, Israel rent themselves from Judah, but we're told the Lord rent Israel from the house of David. And they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Now he was terrible, wasn't he? Because with his pseudo-religion, saying, yes, this is God, the God that brought us out of Egypt, and he had this kind of worship that he invented. Oh, you don't have to go to Israel. It's an easy religion. You don't have to go to, to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, men. You don't have to travel up there. Well, he was just worried about his own kingdom, wasn't he? Didn't want to join again with Judah. And what did he do? He set himself in the office of a priest. I need to just take us there, I think. If you just notice, remember in 1 Kings 12, verse 18. 1 Kings 12, 18. And this is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, taking the, the tax money, and all the children stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot. This is when, by the way, Israel were rebelling, to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Now you notice, come down to chapter 12, verse 31. This is concerning Jeroboam. He was a maverick. He was a cowboy. He was a man who thought he could be a king and a priest. It says, and he made an house of high places and made priests of the lowest people. In other words, he lowered the standard of the ministry of God's word. That's what he did. He made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. You could only be a priest if you were from Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month. This is his own making. On the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast as is in Judah, and offered up upon the altar. He had no business in offering anything. Now here we have it. You know the next chapter. We saw it before. He's there on the altar. He offers up. God sends a prophet and he tells him to stop doing it. But he doesn't. He even froze that man's arm mid-air. <coughs> we get to the end of 1 Kings 13 verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. Now, just, I think it's really important. The Lord has impressed this upon my mind this week. There's a real danger today, my friend. When you lower the standard of the ministry, the church is in great danger. 
Look at Jeroboam. He made anybody who wanted to be a priest. And to be a priest meant that you, you would teach the word of God because the, the Levites were preachers throughout Israel. And so you could say what you want. And you could offer up what you want. And that's what we've got today. You have people who do not handle the word of God with care. And that's what happened. You have men that are preaching, that are not set apart by the church to preach the word of God. It's a solemn thing. I mentioned this yesterday at the young people's meeting. And the nation was destroyed. And the church today has a solemn, 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 solemn responsibility to send faithful men to preach the word of God. What do we read in Romans chapter 10 verse 15? How shall they preach except they be sent? And it is the church's responsibility, my friends, to pray that they will be given wisdom to appoint such men faithful to the word. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, entrust the word to faithful men. Not to anybody, not to any Tom, Dick, and Harry that says, I feel a burden to preach, I will preach. What did they do? They lowered the standards. And look what happened to Israel over the course of the years. You need to pray for me, and you need to pray for others. They walked, it says, we read how many times in the sins of Jeroboam. We have read that throughout Second Kings, haven't we? Carelessness, disregard for God's word, disregard for God's commandments. And my friend, that is, it is widespread throughout the churches today. Please correct me. If you think I'm wrong, well, if you do, I think we're living on different planets. The word of God is disregarded. There's a serious warning. Jeroboam will have much to answer for, will he not, on the day of judgment? But so will many others. This is why James says, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And you can't excuse Israel either, because they tolerated Jeroboam, and they tolerated all these false teachers. The church should have high standards, because God is high, isn't he? What a warning this passage gives us. Not my people. Will the Lord stamp that over you? Not 
my people. Will the Lord stamp that over this church? Not my people. Or my people. The ten tribes are now lost. They're not Britain. They're not Europe. They're not the United States. They're not China. They're not India or the Rastafarians. They are lost, as lost as can be. They assimilated into the other nations, and they are lost. When the Lord Jesus came there in John 4 and met with a woman, they were a completely different people. He said, you worship that which you know not. And now notice this open paganism. We don't have time to go through it all. Verse 24, it's wicked. It's idolatry everywhere. And I want you to notice, just as we close, the king of Assyria, he sends them a useless priest. The lions are sent out. God sends the lions. Notice in verse 24, and the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon from Kutha, from Ava. He populates the cities all over Israel now. There are just foreigners everywhere. And they begin to dwell there. And we read in verse 25, And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. And we read, And the people spoke to the king of Assyria, The nations which thou hast removed have placed the cities of Samaria, knew not the manner of the God of the land. He's not just the God of the land, but he's the God of, of the earth. And they, they realize God is judging, but he's not just the God of the land, but he's the God of the whole earth. And we read, they discern this. Behold, they slay them because these lions, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. And what does he do? He sends a useless priest who tries to teach them the fear of the Lord. But the man knew nothing of the fear of the Lord. He was most likely an ungodly, if he was truly a God-fearing man, he would have been in the south. There were no real teachers now in the north. The lions stop, but the idolatry doesn't stop. Sobering, isn't it? Do you fear a lion more than you fear God? You should fear God more than a lion. A lion may devour you. But what after death? The judgment. Have you known God? They made gods everywhere. Verse 29, Howbeit every nation made gods of their own. The lions didn't change their mind. They continued on in idolatry. And yet it, we're told they, they even feared the Lord, but they, but, but they, they had their idols still. And people are like that in churches. There's a sense in which they know God is. And yet God has sent such a delusion upon people that they'll still hold and cling on to their idols. My, my friends, that is the judgment of God. To have a sense that God is and yet still hold on to idols. These are pagan gods. And Paul tells us, I must close with this, what is an idol? When you see a man bowing down to an image, what is it? Paul tells us that when a man offers something to an idol, he's offering to a devil. 
1 Corinthians 10, 18. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are they not which eat of the sacrifices partaker of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? He says, but I say this, that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. You say, but pastor, we need to show a little bit of respect for people. Honesty, my friend. Idolatry is offering up to evil spirits. The church has no time for political correctness. To offer up to idols, Paul says, is giving to devils. We as a church, and sadly, I remember some years ago we were going to purchase a property. And the minister of that church said, do you know what? We had the local imam come in and tell us about Islam. This last week. Don't you want to learn about Islam? No, I don't. It's evil. There is no so-called Allah. It is an evil spirit. All of these false religions are evil. Because God says it is so. May we turn from the idol of heart and the idols of this world to serve the living God. Amen.